Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. Just the simple act of masturbation. Hear people go to church, they hear all these things, and then they get harmed, and then they come to therapy where I can help them. Then they go back to church where they hear all these things where they're harmed again, Mm. and then they come to me as a therapist. They called it self-abuse. It's no wonder that these kids are struggling. We can see a fetus stimulating their genitals. So it's something as normative as that. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you would prefer to see our faces, head on over to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness. You can like, subscribe, leave a comment. In fact, starting this episode, we are going to be taking your questions and asking them to our next guests in future episodes. So if you have any topics that you want covered, leave a comment below and you may be featured in one of our future episodes. All right. So today's guest, I know I say I'm super excited every time, but I'm really excited. I'm thrilled. I'm honored (laughs) to have this guest with me on this episode because she is an OG in in the space of sex therapy and speaking out and just having so much to say. She is an ASECT certified sex therapist, speaker, writer, podcaster, and supervisor with 20 years, 20 plus years of treating individuals, couples, and families. She regularly presents at a variety of national, professional, and public conferences and universities, and she is an advocate for sexual health in marginalized populations such as the LGBTQ+, uh, religious minorities, and women, and she champions destigmatizing sexual lifestyle choices due to cultural, personal, religious bias. So you may know her from Mormon Stories. Uh, That's where she was broadcast out with her story, which we will get into. It's wild, intense, inspiring, all of the things. And (laughs) before I get into that, let's welcome Natasha Helper. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. It's so great to have you on and have these conversations because, uh, As my listeners know, we've done so many episodes on sex, but I am not an expert here or a professional. So to have an expert and a professional on is amazing. So a little bit about Natasha, and she's going to get into it as well, but just a brief overview. She was a devout Mormon, and she just started writing some blog posts about how she disagrees with certain sexual rules within the church, um, speaking out because... There is clinical information out there proving that what the church says we should be doing is not really what we should be doing. And they basically said, yeah, you're not going to do that. And they excommunicated her. So it was either she keeps her license and continues saying what she believes is true and loses her membership or she does her clients dirty and tells them wrong information and stays in the church. So we're going to go into a bit of that. We're going to go into um, purity culture and how it is harmful. We're going to go into sex media and misconceptions about porn. And we're going to talk about sex education, as well as answering a few of your questions from my Instagram poll. So there's a lot to cover. Let's get into it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And I would say the third, I would say the third choice in that, you know, is what a lot of therapists do, which is just to stay silent. Mm. Um, So they, they won't necessarily be public in their views. They'll, they'll be, you know, they'll be sharing adequate, correct information with their clients, but they won't go public against the church. And so therefore, um, and that, that was where my kind of um, ethics came in as I started feeling very complicit with these issues because I could see people being harmed, you know, on a fairly regular basis. So here people go to church, they hear all these things and then they get harmed and then they come to therapy where I can help them. Then they go back to church where they hear all these things where they're harmed again. And then they come to Mm. me as a therapist. And, and there was never any like communication really, you know, between these two entities. And so, um, so you can be a therapist and not get excommunicated if you're quiet. Um, But that's, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable with that. 
what are some of the things that you kept seeing over and over that you realized were an issue that were going against the evidence, the clinical evidence? Yes. I mean, there's, there's quite a few things. Um, the main three things that I got in trouble for that I probably spoke about a lot um, was just the simple act of masturbation. Mm-hmm. This is a very common normative human practice that we see, you know, across cultures, across race, across socioeconomic status, you know, across gender, um, across biological sex. So when you see a, a human behavior that's really kind of across all of those spectrums, you start realizing this is probably somewhat normative. You know, this is, and you see it even across age, right? So from very, very early, even in the womb, to, you know, people who are elderly and dying are still touching their genitalia for all kinds of reasons, right? Sexual, non-sexual, soothing, stress relief, pleasure, you know, all kinds of things. And, uh, and yet most high demand conservative religious spaces will, what I call cinify is this, will make this, you know, something that's deemed incorrect behavior. And there's quite a bit of mythology attached to this that, you know, given hundreds of years ago, even the medical community kind of was complicit with, like, you know, you would go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, or you'd get acne, or you'd get, you know, um, manic, you know, like, you know, you'd get um, warts on your hands, you know, I mean, like, so there was a lot of mythology around masturbation that kind of infiltrated a lot of the different cultural, you know, areas of our societies. And um, of course, none of that is true. <laughs> and, and everything we know about masturbation now is that it's fairly beneficial. You know, it's, it helps us with stress relief. It's, it's a very good coping mechanism. It helps you sleep. It helps with chronic pain. It helps um, prevent certain like cancers, like prostate cancers, especially in um, midlife to elderly adult um, penis owners. You know, so there's a lot of different benefits that can help. It can help with menstrual cramps. Yeah. <laughs> We've created this, you know, huge, like, you know, drama about it. And I don't know how many people know that, like, Kellogg was one of the people that was, like, um, against masturbation and cornflakes and graham crackers and things like this come from kind of an attempt to curtail masturbation because if you could, like, help people. Oh, yeah. Like, if you could help people, like, have bland foods and things that were like, you know, I'm not exactly sure. It's like like bland food that would just kind of get you to be kind of calm. You could eat your cornflakes. This this would help you not masturbate. Something like that. That is the wildest thing I've ever heard. Oh, yeah. There's there's all kinds of history around this. It's just, you know, really, and, and some of it is very tragic. I mean, they would place, you know, like, um, certain acid on clitoral tissues to stop females from masturbating. Um, There's a lot of really kind of tragic history around masturbation. So this isn't a a Mormon story or a Catholic story or a, you know, Orthodox Jewish story. This is a human story that goes back centuries. The, the, I think the control of sexuality is something that all societies have grappled with and have tried to, manage or regulate in some way. Most of that has to do with reproduction and inheritance and what monies and territories and properties go to which baby. So you start getting very concerned about what happens to sperm and what happens to babies and eggs. And so societies start regulating that. And of course that has infiltrated religion and government and laws and voila, then you have certain cultures that have certain ideas around something as normative as masturbation, where we can see a fetus stimulating their genitals. Um, So it's something as normative as that. That was the thing that I heard from your interview that blew my mind that I've probably repeated 20 times since. It was like, even babies in the womb are masturbating, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's just... It's wild. I mean, the information that we have now and how these religions are adapting, and maybe they will, I think, I, I would be curious to know your opinion. Do you think they will ever adapt and change based on the science now? 
Well, and it's interesting because a lot of religions have, you know, religion is, is a wide spectrum. You've got, of course, the Unitarian Church that's doing probably the best job at comprehensive sexual education through the Our Whole Lives program. Um, and then, of course, you've got fundamental sex that, you know, you still have female genital mutilation happening. And um, so religion is a difficult word, right, mm -hmm. because it can encapsulate a large spectrum of people, a large spectrum of ideas. You have a lot of very LGBTQ plus affirming um, congregations throughout the United States. And of course you have um, congregations that are out picketing, you know, gay funerals, right? So, I mean, there's, there's some really horrendous and yet very affirming spaces under the umbrella of religion. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've, seen this research, you are giving your clients the best information that you have available. You're wanting to truly help them, which bless you for doing that. <laughs> and then you thought, you know what, I am going to take this a step further. I'm going to amplify my voice and let more people know that, hey, this is okay. This is normal. Here's the science. So what was it that clicked in you that made you think, you know what, I want to broadcast my voice to a larger audience, even if it means getting me in trouble? Yeah, so that was very, that was very organic. You know, that was not something that I woke up one morning going, ta-da, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, I, I did start the idea of a blog, you know, whatever, 15 years ago, however long ago that was when those were kind of starting to be popular. Um, I had just moved, uh, so I had kind of lost my practice. I was starting a new practice. So I didn't have a whole lot of things to do professionally. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have kind of like a, kind of like a Dear Abby, but for mental health and also kind of within the Mormon community, that's my faith community. And I thought, you know, we, not that we can, you know, I, I felt like um, in my faith community, there was some advancement in normalizing mental health in the like 90s and early 2000s. Um, but we did have a history of mental health being kind of seen as you know, somewhat, you know, maybe problematic. Um, it hadn't been that long ago that psychiatry and the field of psychiatry had been seen as problematic within the Mormon community. And that's not uncommon amongst conservative religions, you know, this kind of tension between the social sciences, psychiatric sciences, even medical sciences, and religious communities. Um, you know, you'll even have religious communities where like blood transfusions are not seen as um, of God, you know, or certain, right. certain um, ways of treating people are not are not seen as natural or holy. So these are all kind of tensions that exist between these two worlds of science and religion. So Mormonism had its own history in that. And um, so I felt like this was a needed service and it might be something that people might gravitate towards. So when I first started my blog, I wasn't a sex therapist. I was kind of a run-of-the-mill marriage and family therapist, seeing couples issues, seeing depression, seeing anxiety, you know, kind of typical things. So I thought people would call, you know, write in questions about marriage or parenting or depression or, you know, just kind of how do I deal with these kind of basic things. Pretty much right off the bat, people started writing in about sex. Um, <laughs> I guess if you have an anonymous venue <laughs> where you can write in about anything, people are going to start asking you about sex. And, and I felt somewhat equipped, but I was like, oh, wow, these are like really, you know, pretty um, detailed questions, you know, um, about a lot of things that I, you know, I started feeling more and more like, I don't know. I mean, am I, you know, equipped? Am I, uh, I mean, I took one course in human sexuality in my graduate program, which, you know, now looking back, that's very ill-equipped. I was very <laughs> ill-equipped to be answering questions around human sexuality. But I was a marriage and family therapist, right? So I thought I knew something about sex. I was having sex. I don't know. <laughs> Thinking I could answer some of it. Um, but, it, you know, yeah. So, so this is where I started thinking maybe I should go in for more training. And I started looking into ASECT and becoming a certified sex therapist. That's really what drove me to that process of my career. And yes, the questions start coming in and you can start seeing a lot of the sexual shame, which granted had also been showing up in my office, right? And these were the, the things that started um, putting me in conflict with my own faith tradition as well, mm. you know, because 
when people are coming in with so much shame, so much guilt, where you see things that in my mind weren't making sense. For example, I've got like a 16 year old kid who is suicidal, right? Um, and I'm not talking about one kid, like right now, I'm not, I'm not even thinking about a particular client. I'm thinking of, of a variety of clients I could think about where um, they've never been sexually active. In fact, they've hardly even had a girlfriend or boyfriend or any romantic interest. They feel like they are a sinner next to murder. These are the, the terms that they are using. And they're going in to confess on a regular basis because of masturbation, because they're masturbating maybe once a month or once every three months or oh. even once a week, right? All normative, all like under the APA, you know, the American Psychiatric or American Pediatric Association, all normal behavior. But here's this kid who's suicidal. Oftentimes, if the bishop is complicit with this kind of shaming, they're being disciplined. If they're, if they're a male in the system, they're not able to pass a sacrament. If they're a female, they're maybe not able to go to temple trips. Um, a lot of times their parents are involved, so there's no privacy around this issue. There's no boundaries being taught around privacy and human sexuality for teenagers. And now here they are in front of me, a strange lady talking about <laughs> these very private things embarrassed, ashamed, you know, we're just kind of adding to the problem by coming in to see me. And I'm supposed to help them stop this sinful behavior, which isn't even in my code of ethics, really, because this isn't pathology. This isn't, you know, this isn't a disease. This isn't a disorder, but it is causing them quite mm -hmm. a bit of distress. And it is causing other types of disorders, like depression, like anxiety, like OCD, like PTSD, right? So we're starting from a fairly early age to contribute to actual mental health disorders. Um, and I'm like, holy cow, like most 16 year olds I see out there, <laughs> they're struggling, you know, most 16 year olds are struggling, but for a lot of like other reasons that I think are a little bit more valid, than this kind of self-imposed, community-imposed, religious-imposed um, kind of artificial struggle that is so damaging. And now not only affects their sense of self, their sense of family, their sense of relationship, because now I'm so unworthy, nobody's going to want to date me or be with me. I'm damaged goods. I'm also now not able to really have a great relationship with my God that I believe in. So now my spiritual identity is being affected and um, they haven't even usually kissed anybody. Oh, that's so aggravating. I'm like, how is this happening? How is this happening where they're really seeing themselves at the level of almost like a sexual perpetrator? Right. Because they're touching, you know, they're diddling with their own parts. Right. Self-exploration. So this started getting me more and more enraged, really to the point that I was getting enraged. Um, more and more kids, you know, coming into my office. I kind of remember the last kid that kind of broke the straw, you know, in my camel's back, I guess. And even talking with, um, you know, her parents, seeing the parents' distress and, and them, you know, kind of understanding and agreeing with me. And um, yeah, I was like, I can't stand complicit with this anymore. You know, I have this profession, I have this degree, I have this authority in my credentials, and I have to speak up and say, we are damaging our children through this one principle, this one teaching, which is a very basic one. We're not, I mean, this is at the basic level of human sexuality. We're not even talking about kink. We're not even talking about you know, sexual orientation, we're not talking about polyamory, we're not, you know, we're not talking about all the different kinds of more complex areas of human sexuality, we're talking about solo sexuality, my relationship with my own body, what I do with my hands and my body, we can't even get that right. Right. It's so frustrating that I mean, I think you mentioned in one of your interviews that they called it self abuse. And 
how far from the truth is that? That's, it's no wonder that these kids are struggling with what they're struggling with. So, of course, I could see you being enraged and wanting to help these people, and especially in the marginalized communities, like you mentioned. Um, so then you write this pretty famous now a blog post about masturbation, and you knew kind of like, okay, maybe someone's going to come after me for this, but it didn't take or took about two years before that actually happened, right? Before you got the letter from the church saying that they wanted to hold a disciplinary council? No, actually, it was 12 years. So my original post, yeah, my original post about, and I think it's called something like masturbation is not a sin. So it's pretty explicit. (laughs) I think I was I was fairly, you know, and it was really the first time that I was writing something on that blog that I felt went directly kind of against church policy or church's understanding of doctrine. Um, Prior to that, I felt like I had been progressive and I had a lot of progressive ideas, but I hadn't really written anything that was really against what the church had said. So I was very nervous about publishing that. Um, I was a devout believing member at the time. Um, I value my member. I, val- I still value my membership, and I valued my membership then. So I was very nervous about publishing it. I wondered what would happen, and I did. I, I published it. it. Took me three days to hit publish after I had written it because I was so nervous about it. And there were some ramifications pretty much right off the bat. I would say LDS Family Services pretty much stopped referring to me immediately. I would say locally, there were ramifications in that I could tell I was being treated differently. I was no longer receiving certain callings. I was, you know, kind of, there was this like this kind of like passive aggressive, kind of like quiet way of um, ousting me, but without really doing anything specific. I was never called in. I was never questioned. I was... There was never a conversation, which actually I would have preferred. You know, I would prefer I would have preferred for the um, the for instance the the person who is running LDS Family Services to call me in and have a discussion instead of just quietly stop referring to me. So I lost about a third of my client base wow. at that time in my practice due to that post um, that I that I wrote. So there was a ramification, but not a formal one. Um, Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, I think that's the relationship the church and I took. We just kind of quietly, politely, formally ignored each other. I still (laughs) attended church. They didn't say anything. I kept writing. Um, They kept saying horrific things. I kept complaining about the horrific things they said. And that happened for about, yeah, about 10 years or so. Um, until then, yes, I finally did receive this letter. And the letter that I received was kind of out of the blue because there wasn't anything that I could think of that I had done recently that I was like, oh, well, yeah, you know, last week I did write this thing. So it makes sense (laughs) that I'm getting this letter now, right? So it didn't, I hadn't really written anything for about a year or two. Um, You know, the letter came uh, right at the beginning well, no, about a, a, a year into COVID. It was a year into my move. I was in the process of a divorce. It was a very kind of tumultuous time in my life. I wasn't writing very much. I wasn't very involved in kind of these activities that I had been doing before. Um, but I, you know, I, I did, I was very open about um, LGBTQ plus rights. I was, I, and that's one of the things that they mentioned in this letter of concern was my support for gay marriage. Um, I did take a role in Sam Young's uh, movement of protecting LDS children from worthiness interviews. I was very open about that. Mm. Um, I did write a a letter to President Nelson directly through an op-ed, Salt Lake Tribune, when he um, gave what we call the Sad Heaven Talk, which, you know, given your podcast, it's kind of like a cultish type of talk where you're really trying to separate family members who, um, you know, belong to the religion or don't belong to the religion, which causes intense anxiety, intense anxiety and sadness. And right after that talk was given, 
my practice at Symmetry Solutions saw a huge increase in that next month of people coming in, adolescents in particular, sobbing in our offices about their mixed faith families and their fears of parents who maybe would not be able to join them in, this, in the heavens. Um, and things that really, quite frankly, don't resonate with my understanding of Mormon doctrine either, right? So even though I'm Mormon, I mean, there's it's like any religion, right? So you talk to five different Catholics, you'll get five different ideas of what Catholicism is. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, my understanding of eternal progression is very different than President Nelson's idea of eternal progression, you know, obviously from that talk alone. And, um, and I just didn't think it was a very helpful interpretation for families to live in well-being and health in this particular time um, of mortality, you know, in this time. So I, I wrote him a letter kind of from a mental health perspective that you are hurting families' mental health and well-being when you speak in ways that are so divisive and damaging. Wow. So I had done all those things, but kind of years before I received my letter of excommunication or of discipline court coming up. You received the letter on Easter, right? So it was was like quite the day to get the news, like you said, out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great day to get a letter. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you're kind of blindsided by this news and they give you two weeks to fly back to, was it Kansas, to have your disciplinary council? Correct. So what was that like for you when you open this letter and you are blindsided and it's based on information that you think is that they should be apologizing for, not you? Where was your mental state at at that time and how were you able to get through such a horrible process of them kicking you out of something that you loved and hold held so dearly? Yeah, it was. So just to be fair to them, I don't know that blindsided is completely fair because the stake president and bishop in Wichita, Kansas, had been in contact with me about two or three times a year before I received that letter. So I kind of, I knew that they wanted to talk to me. Mm. They had sent me that letter about the concerns right, that they had about my positions. Their concerns were my support for normalizing masturbation, my support for gay marriage, my positions on sexual media, sexually explicit materials, pornography. Um, the fact that I ha- they had found somewhere that I had said something about um, not supporting patriarchal pricks. So I guess they didn't like that language. I'm like, okay, well, if we want to have a language war, there's a lot of language you all use that I have a problem with as well. So I made a list of that language as well, names that they call us. Um, but that's okay. I was like, I'm willing to stop using bad language if you're willing to do that too. Um, let's see what else. Uh, oh, and the fact that I was, that I was um, branding myself as Mormon, right? Because my blog is the Mormon therapist. I, run podcasts like Mormon Sex Info and the Mormon Mental Health Podcast. And so they're like, if you're branding yourself as Mormon, but you're taking these positions that we don't agree with, then that's very confusing for the audience. And so those were their lists. That was their list of concerns. I was like, okay, so thank you for the list. Thank you. I, I was, I was grateful that they had sent me what they were concerned about. And then I wrote a letter back saying, you know, I've been thinking about this and you're no longer really my stake president. Like, I don't live in Derby, which in the Derby stake anymore. In fact, I've been living here in the um, Salt Lake City area for, uh, by this time, almost a year. So uh, I appreciate your concerns, but would you please send your concerns to the local stake president and bishop? And I'll pick that conversation up with them, right? So I'd be I'd be happy to do that. I'm not. I wasn't trying to say I wouldn't have those conversations, <laughs> but I was, I was like, why am I still talking to people in Kansas? I don't live in Kansas anymore. Um, and so when I sent that letter saying, "Hey, you're no longer my state president," so I would prefer to have that conversation with people here. That's when. Um, about a month later, two months later, I'm not exactly sure. That's when I got that letter handed to me at my front door on Easter morning by some local, I'm sure, member of the bishop. I don't even know who he was, member of the bishopric or member of the high council or whoever it was. So 
it was somewhat blindsiding, yes. But it wasn't like there had been zero contact. I just want to be very fair and very clear. So I don't ever want to be unfair in this process of how I'm presenting this whole scenario. And then, yes, they gave me two weeks. Actually, they gave me one week. They gave me one week. They said this disciplinary council will be, will be held in one week next Sunday. Um, so I quickly said, can you please give me two weeks? Because I was planning to travel to Kansas anyway to visit my older son who was still back there. Um, so that was that was the only thing that they kind of gave me in the whole process was um, allowing me two weeks instead of one week to prepare for that disciplinary council. Because they said I could have witnesses, they said I could have um, all these things, but they only gave me a week to prepare all that. So, Right. And that's insane. And I remember all of this happening because of John DeLynn on Mormon Stories, which I think you guys are pretty close friends. And I was so glad that he broadcast that out and told everyone what was happening. Um, I can't wait. He's coming on the podcast soon. <laughs> We're trying to record something over Christmas. But it was so nice to hear from you how you were feeling. And man, those interviews were so gut-wrenching. I mean, I turned up a few times. I was just like, oh, this is so awful that they're doing this to this woman who is just trying to do her job and trying to help people in their mental state and help them live happier, healthier lives. And he was asking everyone to rally who wants to fly over there and support her. Let's do what we can. And you get over there, this whole climactic thing happening, <laughs> no pun intended, with orgasm. <laughs> but we get to the point. It was point. very climactic. It was very non-orgasmic, <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. It was like the definition of blue balls happening, yeah. where you get all your people rallied, and you're ready to go, and you have your witnesses, and people writing in, giving you um, credentials, no, this person knows what she's talking about. And you get in there ready to go, and they say you can't have your phone that had your notes on it. So they didn't even hear you out because, of course, and tell me if I'm missing any of the details, but I thought that you had your notes on your phone and you didn't want to leave your phone because you wanted to be prepared, and they said no. And so you were like, cool, I'm not going in then. It's so aggravating. Yeah, it was very upsetting. I mean, I was already so aggravated by that point. Um, I mean, they had said we couldn't bring in any recording devices, which I had agreed to. We had all signed that. My witnesses had all signed that. I know people have recorded uh, disciplinary councils before. I don't think most people have recorded those things on their phone. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I think if you're going to record something like that, most people have like a hidden recording device, right? Like, and that's, that's right. kind of what I had thought <laughs> they meant. Um, and those things were actually offered to me. So by several people, several, I would say three to four different people offered me recording devices. Um, but I could have put like under my shirt or I could have put like in my ear and I have a lot of hair, you know, that can cover that up. And um, so if I had wanted to record the meeting, I could have definitely lied and done that. One of the things that was really important to me throughout this whole process was my principle of honesty and just seeing the process through. Like, how does this process work? What is it like? Um, to be honest, I would have loved a recording because I would have loved to be able to go back and, and not only remember exactly what I had said, you know, but also what maybe they had said to me. I knew from probably from having listened to the prior recordings that they probably weren't going to say much to me. Um, I was actually more curious as to what I would say, because in these moments when I'm all hyper and feisty and not with a lot of sleep, you know, who knows what I would have said. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was really, I was really willing. I was really willing to just kind of surrender to the process and be like, you know, I, I will, I will do this the way that the church has decided to do it. Otherwise, why am I doing it at all? You know, so, cause I didn't have to go, you know, I didn't have to go through this process. So uh, I really went with that honest intent. But then when it came to this point where it felt like I had to hand over like my property in order to enter their 
space, which already felt so abusive, and the whole process had felt so abusive. It was almost like the last straw. I just couldn't take it. Um, and I, I just said, there's no way I'm handing over my phone. Um, looking back on that now, I feel like if I would have known that they would have stopped the entire process and stopped even my witnesses from coming in, I maybe would have gone outside and handed my phone to one of my people. You know, I still wouldn't have given the phone to them um, and maybe got in there and mustered through without my notes. But I was really nervous what I was going to say without my notes. Yeah. Because as you all know, I'm not, I'm not good sometimes with diplomacy. So <laughs> I, was, I was really trying to stick to my dipl diplomatic notes. <laughs> Um, but if I, so I just figured, well, you know, I, I, I kind of was like, I don't think they're very interested in me anyway. My witnesses are here. They'll speak for me in my behalf. I'll just go and calm down. Um, I'm sure they'll let them in. But once I left, that was it. They just shut the whole process down. And I was just like kind of shocked. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, it just shows how little interest they had in the whole process to begin with. And these people were all temple recommend holding people. They knew that they had traveled. They knew that they had spent their own monies and time and energy to be there. So the, the level of disrespect, I mean, the fact that they showed me disrespect, I've been used to that for over a decade. But the level of disrespect that they showed my witnesses was really what just kind of was so traumatic for me. It was just really traumatic. And to watch wow. their traumatic responses to that was um, just devastating. Yeah, it's been a year and a half now, right? How do you feel now? Where do you stand now before we get into your expertise on purity culture? Well, I'm not crying as I tell you this story. So that's an improvement. So that's that's improvement. Although, you know, there's nothing wrong with crying. Um, but it does let me know that my system can process the telling of the story without um, that type of an emotional release that a lot of times I've needed as I've told the story prior to this. So I am definitely a lot um, better in my healing process from it. It was shocking to me, um, given that I had told you that I was prepared over 10 years ago for some type of disciplinary procedure, and then having to finally face it over a decade later, always being worried about that. Um, I thought I would have been more prepared for how difficult it would be. And it was, it's interesting, I've been working with um, Lisa Diamond, who's a professor here at the University of Utah, who does a lot of really amazing work around sexuality, around social safety, around um, you know, sexual shame, around a lot of different kinds of these kinds of issues. And in one of the surveys that they just did, they haven't published it yet, but there's this measure for what cost there is for being shunned from your religion and, and how devastating that is um, to people. And it doesn't have to be an official shunning, like an excommunication, you know, but just to be not included, to know that you're on the outs of your own community and the cost that that is for somebody. And yeah, I, I was not prepared for how devastating that would be for me, even though I, I felt like I had intellectually prepared for it for years, emotionally and spiritually, it was devastating. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And at this point, you are still at the helm of the ship of masturbation is not a sin, which is great. And <laughs> yes. I love that you are still captaining the, <laughs> let me show you what healthy sexuality looks like boat. So I would love to get into that. You have some really awesome videos on your Instagram about how purity culture affects men and women. And I also want to talk about um, different gender identities as well within this. I'm really interested to hear your opinion on how purity culture also affects the LGBTQ plus community. I was really happy to receive a comment from Jess on one of my previous videos with Exmolex, and I just wanted to make sure we speak on that as well, because I'm certainly not an authority in that group of people. I, I could probably speak for 10 hours on this question alone, because um, <laughs> there are so many, so many messages 
that we receive. Um, and, and it's not just in purity culture, but that's where I'd like to stay today. But I want to make sure that we don't only blame religion um, because media and popular culture has its own list, right, of very shaming, of course, very difficult messages about what it means to be sexual, what it means to fit in, what it means to have the right body, what it means to be sexy. Um, so that's another 10 hours we could spend on. <laughs> but if I'm going <laughs> to stay on, <laughs> I'm going to stay on kind of religiously conservative, high demand religious cultures, first and foremost, it's, it's a big gender divide, right? So it assumes, right off the bat, it assumes that we are female and male and that females present a certain way and males present a certain way. And that we have these roles to play in these bodies, whether you're born with a vagina or a penis, you are given those types of roles and you are raised with a lot of expectations and messages around what you should be presenting as, how you should be acting, what what sexual roles you should be playing, whether you should be the aggressor or the, the passive one. Um, and, and right off the bat, we know that a huge amount of the population doesn't even fit into that box, right? Because we're learning more and more about sexual fluidity, sexual orientation, um, about, you know, so many of our LGBTQ plus um, members, um, intersex people, asexual people, queer people um, are, we're, we're knowing more and more about this. And the more we give permission for people to understand themselves outside of those two very binary boxes, the more people understand themselves in more fluid ways that don't fit into those two spaces. So um, right off the bat, you're, you're kind of like trying to fit into a very, very tight space that, that is very difficult to contain the totality of who you are as a person. And anytime I say, anytime you're doing this, what do you think that does to your sex life? Because vaginas need to do this, yes. right? And penises <laughs> need to do this. Yes. Right? <laughs> and so when we're like this, <laughs> it's not helping our sexuality, right? It's not helping us sexually express and, and sexually behave and sexually feel comfortable within our own bodies and our own identities and our own spaces. So, you know, so if we're going to talk about this kind of from a very heteronormative perspective, I mean, you're getting a lot of messages around things like, um, you know, uh, things just even like for, for a, a vulva or vagina owner, right off the bat, you're going to have a lot of messages around modesty and how do you present your body, mm -hmm. right? And if you show too much skin, if you show your cleavage or your knees or in some cultures, your ankles or your hair or your shoulders, you know, your porn shoulders, right. <laughs> if you show any of these things, you are now responsible for the, for the sexual response and behavior of a penis-owning individual, and and, for, and then if you're a penis-owning individual, you're like, oh, so I guess I'm getting the message that I should be responding to vagina owners in this way. And, and maybe I do. Maybe I do feel some arousal around that. Maybe I don't. What, what does that mean, right? And how, how am I supposed to respond? Instead of really getting messages around consent and... Um, regulation, you know, and arousal regulation, and that, of course, it's normal to be attracted to different people for different ways and in different ways, not just sexually even. But how are we going to regulate that? How are we going to normalize that? How are we going to manage ourselves around other people? Um, instead of expecting other people to manage your feelings or arousal levels. So I mean, that's just modesty rhetoric, right? Then you've got the whole kind of um, idea that that penis owners are more sexual than vagina owners, mm -hmm. right? That they have more sexual drive or have more uh, aggressive drive. They're going to be the aggressors. They're expected in a lot of these cultures to be the ones who um, ask a vagina owner to marry them, to date them, to have sex with them. So they're the initiators. So a vagina owner who has their own sex drive, what does that mean for them? So if I, if I want to aggress, if I want to initiate, if I want to be 
forward, does that make me a slut, a hoe, a whore? Because these are all the names, right? That yes, exactly. have been very forthcoming, the promiscuity lens, right? For female people who um, are, are want to be sexual. So there's, you know, and then there's the virginity narrative and the purity narrative that, that whatever happens to a certain part of your body now all of a sudden has a lot to do with how you see yourself from a worthiness perspective and worthiness in the sense of whether or not you're marriageable material, whether or not you can be brought home to mom, whether or not you can be seen okay in the eyes of God. Um, I mean, I just start like just these three narratives alone just start giving me a headache, right? And then you've got like, you can't trust the natural man, right? Whole narrative. So yeah, because there's all these parts of us that are um, wanting to, I don't know, be run by Satan and Satan wants to possess us and control us. And so now you've got these boogeymen, you know, you've got like Satan that's looking over me and, and God that's looking over me and you've got these voyeurs and, and wow, what does that do to my sexuality? Right? Like I'm sitting there going, Hmm, there's all these people looking at me and maybe my ancestors can look at me too. And there's a lot of people looking at me while I'm having sex, right? Or while I'm touching myself, right? I'm like, Oh my gosh, right? It's, it's <laughs> Yeah, I totally remember being like, wait, who's watching me? And is someone watching me in the shower and feeling like I have no privacy? No privacy. And then, and what, and what do these thoughts mean? So if I'm feeling uncomfortable about something that I want to try, is that because Satan wants me to try it? Or is that because it's actually kind of normal to feel uncomfortable when you're trying something new? Like, yes. Yes, thank you. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I felt uncomfortable when I got married and tried new things. Yeah. Does that mean that Satan was behind that? No, I don't think so. But, you know, but we, so we match the narrative to these kind of religious stories that are all faced in a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of like, um, and, and not just, not just little fear. It's not little fear. This is like, you know, big F fear, like we're talking with very provocative language over the pulpit, like words like perverse and sinister and hell and damnation and eternal consequences and, you know, um, next to murder and sinister. I mean, these are not like, well, you know, you may want to be a little careful with where you put your penis and vagina because you might get a little pregnant, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's way beyond that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> And so I, it just really has an effect on your ability to feel comfortable in, in your body. And then if, if we think that because one day somebody in a nice pretty dress and a cool suit says, I love you, honey, and I do, and now we're going to go off to bed together, when in many of those cases you haven't even really led up to the bedroom, and all of a sudden, that green light is going to magically put all of that psychological distress and body trauma, because your body has traumatized all that, right? And you're going to be like, ta-da, here I am in my orgasmic bliss. You know, it's <laughs> fairly unrealistic, right? Fairly unrealistic. And, and now you have people, again, most of the time, people who are really wonderful people, people who have desires to be worthy, to be righteous, to be good, God-loving people, right? People who love their faith, people who want to live, you know, good, religious, faithful lives um, and be good community members who are suffering like tremendously in their own marriage beds. Um and then, you know, going back to the LGBTQ community, we have many, many people in mixed orientation marriages and mixed gender identity marriages um, because of this pressure to just fit into this box with zero understanding and, and validation of who you truly are. Um, and then just make it work because if you both love God, it will somehow work. And we know this over and over again. I don't know how many more statistics we need to show that these these things end in tragic results uh, for both parties, right? This, this is a tragic thing for a straight partner to get involved with. This is a tragic thing for a queer person to get involved with. Um, many times, the queer person in a relationship like that 
may not even know themselves enough to know that that's the position they put themselves in because we're encouraging people to make these kinds of decisions at very early ages with little to no sexual development or education. And just with this kind of just, just, just dive into the deep end and it will take care of itself kind of attitude. Um, when we know that that is uh, very, very unwise um, advice that then has lifelong consequences. Yes. And oftentimes children are brought into these relationships that now have ongoing, you know, consequences for them, whether it's a heterosexual marriage or a mixed orientation marriage or, um, you know, any other type of, of relationship. Yeah, we just have these layers upon layers upon layers of trauma and baggage to work through. And you mentioned this earlier. What's so frustrating is that it's unnecessary trauma. They don't need to be facing all of these issues. But because of these religious bodies that are saying you are sinful, it's a sin next to murder, you have all of this noise going on in your head and like you mentioned, you're just supposed to flip it off when you're ready to have kids and you're supposed to magically be able to orgasm. In your experience, do women even know what orgasm is by the time they get to that point when they come into your office, women or female identifying women, those who have been in high demand religions, or have you found there's zero education around sex? Wow, you guys, the second half of this conversation was so spicy and so delicious and so full of valuable gems that I decided it needs to be its own standalone episode. So you're definitely gonna wanna stick around for part two where we go into why does Utah have the highest number of porn subscriptions? Is porn actually addictive? And all of the very shocking responses around porn from Natasha that I was just not expecting. Also, we're gonna be talking about the female orgasm and different resources that you can go to to learn how to have a better clitoral orgasm. Fellas, you're gonna wanna stick around for this one too. Make sure you don't miss it. Like, subscribe, hit the bell uh, so you're notified when it comes out. Dropping this Thursday in a few days. If you want to go follow Natasha, you can find her on Instagram at Natasha Helfer MFT linked below. And if you would like to support the podcast, I would super appreciate it. You can become a patron. And um, I shout out these two in the second half of the conversation the next episode, but why not shout them out again? Ruthie and Dina Cardi, I really appreciate you becoming a patron. Thank you so much for your support. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts2Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts2Consciousness at gmail.com.